If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear a conversation I had with the academic and author John Dickey. John is Professor of Italian Studies at UCL and also the author of a new book, The Craft, How Freemasons Made the Modern World. I spoke to John for the September issue of BBC History magazine about sifting fact from fiction in the history of a much misunderstood organisation. When you tell people that you're writing a book on the Freemasons, what are the initial reactions that you get? What do you think that the idea of Freemason sparks in most people's imagination? Yeah. In Britain, um, there's a very clearly defined idea that we have about the Freemasons, at least people of my generation, because really in the 1980s, um, there was, and in the ni- into the 1990s, there was a kind of Freemasonry scandal, if you like. Uh, A rather strange journalist called Stephen Knight, who'd previously published a book of the Freemasons of committing the murders of Jack the Ripper, and Jack the Ripper was a Freemason. Uh, The the story, which was completely fabricated, I mean, it was nonsense, but it, it then went on to have huge success. His other book called The Brotherhood, which was pitched as as a serious piece of journalism, created enormous trouble for the Freemasons because that was the era of where we were very suspicious about the police. There was the, you know, the Birmingham Six and all of those cases. And police corruption was very much, the corruption, the police and judiciary was very much in the news. But this book really took off and... Um, Lots of politicians waded in, principally this time from the political left. I mean, worries about the Freemasons cross political boundaries. um, There was a big inquiry into it, which produced fairly 
you know, absolutely underwhelming results, which basically said, well, look, honestly, it's a bit like they're, they're no more dangerous than a chess club, but we agree it's a bad perception and we need to deal with, you know, it's important that the institutions are seen to be blah, blah, blah. So the Blair government, virtually as soon as it um, uh, started in 97, introduced a policy where you had to declare if you were a Freemason. And this immediately ran into all kinds of problems because, you know, does that mean I, I have to declare that I went to Oxford because that's a damn sight more effective as a network than the poor old Freemasons are? So it ran into legal troubles, it didn't achieve anything, and at the very end of the Blair government, they threw it out. But nonetheless, that perception became deeply embedded and it is that's what people think about the Freemasons now. That's what uh, I imagine many of the readers who will be picking up my book will assume. And that's what fuels the kind of newspaper coverage that the Freemasons get. Uh, just occasionally now it'll be, you know, Freemasons responsible for the cover-up of the Titanic disaster uh, Freemasons responsible in the police responsible for the um, Hillsborough Stadium cover up this kind of thing and these stories go nowhere because there's no ever you know people you know put two Freemasons in a line and make a conspiracy on the other side of that there's another narrative which is the Freemasons own narrative which is um, that this is a noble, honourable tradition of brotherhood and altruism um, and, you know, profoundly misunderstood by the rest of society, um, which is very dull and is part of the truth, undoubtedly, just as the talks of conspiracy are a fragment of the truth too, but in between these two stories, which just dominate the public domain, our discussions of Freemasonry, is a vast, untapped world of extraordinary stories about what Freemasonry meant to people, about the things that it got involved in, about the paranoia that Freemasons have generated throughout their history and that has been extraordinarily historically important, um, you name it. Um, so that's where I am. I'm trying to uh, get past those two narratives that, that if you like, uh, have blocked people's ears to listening to the more, uh, a wider variety of stories about the Freemasons. I guess one reason why there's always been such um, paranoia, as you put it, about, about Freemasonry has been that there is an element of secrecy that's important to Freemasonry. Why do you think that secrecy has been an important element of Freemasonry through history? Freemasonry has embraced secrecy. There's no question about it. It's been a great selling tool for them. Join the Masons and you will learn the secrets you will become part of an elect band uh, with access to privileged knowledge. Um, it also, it often helps, I think, in a lot of context, if you translate what the Masons, when the Masons use the word um, secrecy, 
to translate it as something more like sacredness because it creates an aura of sacredness and specialness around their rituals, which are very, very important to them. And we shouldn't sniff at that, sniff at rituals. They're, they're, they're part of all our lives. And I think we, we like to think we're above that kind of thing, but we shouldn't be. Um, so for them, but, but that, whilst it's been a very powerful thing for them, it inevitably leads to misunderstanding. You just can't get past that. The Freemasons' latest spiel on secrecy, because they had a kind of glasnost after this crisis in the 1980s, and they opened their institutions and their libraries to outside scholars like me. Um, I'm not a Freemason. I think you probably need to spell that out. Um the, and they've been fantastically helpful and open. Their, their librarians and archivists are the best I've ever worked with, without without a question. Um, the, that secrecy is bound to create misunderstanding. Their latest formula, I was about to say, for explaining this secrecy is... Uh, well, it gives you some idea of the problem. They say, we are not a secret society. We're a society with secrets... <laughs> it's not really putting my worries to rest, that, uh, that formulation, exactly. And of course, the rest, as I said, the rest of the world just has a license from that to project whatever it fears into this dark mirror of uh, of Masonic secrecy. And that is one, that's why I start the book with a story about secrecy and how it's misunderstood and how it's manipulated on both sides. Because that's one of the great engines of Masonic history, that constant repositioning in relation to secrecy. The Masons have kept trying to redefine secrecy and give new meaning to that secrecy in different contexts. And people from outside have seen a great many different things in that that secrecy. And that sort of um, founding misunderstanding is is one of the things that just keeps recurring right through Masonic history. Well, to go right back to the beginning of Masonic history, what can you tell us about the the genesis of Freemasonry? Yeah, the, the big issue... And, and Masons of themselves, because a lot of Masons are historians. Very interesting. This is a very historically self-conscious organization. And a lot of Masons think that doing a bit of Masonic history in the archives is part of a Mason's calling, almost. Um, so they're very proud of their traditions and their history and so on and so forth, quite rightly in many ways. The big issue is how you get from stonemasons, so guys who actually have the calluses on their hands and put blocks of stone into walls, to the Freemasons who have nothing to do with stonemasons or whatever, and for whom the tools of a stonemason, plumb lines and trowels and so on, are metaphors of moral becoming. You know, the, meta, the, the what Freemasonry is built around the idea that building is a good metaphor for making yourself a better person, 
Okay. Um, how do we get from between those two things? And there are two really crucial stages, I think. The first is in Scotland at the court of James VI of Scotland, who would very soon afterwards become James I of England, where you get where one of his ministers, trying to win over the stonemasons, their, their guild, if you like, um, introduces them to some very powerful elements of the Renaissance culture of the court. Yeah? And the key thing, I think, is the, the Masonic Lodge. If, you, if you've ever seen a lodge building, it's got a checkerboard floor. Most people have sort of got a vague sense of what the interior of a Masonic Lodge looks like. It's got a kind of chessboard floor and a lot of symbolic, a few chairs, thrones around the outside, and a lot of weird symbols, globes and candles and columns and Bibles and think like pieces on a chessboard. And that, it's a sort of ritual theatre where you play out these very important rituals of how you become a Freemason and go through your Masonic journey, each one marked, each stage marked by um, a ceremony. And that really dates back to this cross-fertilization. And the key element is the art of memory. You may remember this distantly from classical, the classical era. Cicero um, used to remember his speeches, his long speeches, the great Roman orator, politician, uh, by imagining himself in a building. And each room in the building would be a section of his speech. And each item in the room, a column, a mosaic, uh, a recess, a statue, would be some, a point he needed to make. And he would help, that would help him memorise, visualise his memories. And so for him, a building became a kind of theatre of memory, a way, a tool of memory. And the Masons began to see their rituals acted out, want their rituals acted out in something similar, a space that was similar, full of symbols. Because in the Renaissance, it was often thought that that kind of memory exercise had almost magical properties. It could, in the right circumstances, give you access to the mind of God. It was a really abstruse form of uh, uh, Renaissance philosophy called Hermeticism. But that was the magic moment that really elevated the, the initiation rituals and bits and pieces of a stonemason's guild into something higher and more philosophically ambitious that gentlemen, non-stonemasons, began to be attracted by because it was open to some of the, the, the key, most exciting intellectual developments of the time, like alchemy and all kinds of stuff. So that's the first moment. The second moment is in the early 18th century, when um, we get the foundation of the first Grand Lodge of England, a kind of governing body 
for Freemasonry in 1717. Now that event, which is still surrounded by mystery, but was political through and through, this was the moment of the Whig ascendancy, where the Tories were kind of thrown out of every available position. And it seems like there was a Whig takeover of this organisation that was the forerunner of the Freemasons uh, in 1717. And various important figures who'd been Tories before, who were important in this forerunner of Freemasonry, including Christopher Wren, were marginalised. And that gives Freemasonry access to political power. It gives it, 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 it sort of, as it were, comes off the byways of culture and enters the motorway of the Enlightenment and 18th century society and, you know, empire. Because within 15 years, Freemasons, from these extraordinary obscure beginnings, are present everywhere in the world. It's an astonishing transformation. You know, by the mid-1730s, we have Masonic lodges in Istanbul, in Charleston, in the Caribbean, in North America, across, you know, in large parts of Europe, in the Middle East. Uh, there was, I think there was one in Aleppo. I mean, it, 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 the most extraordinary success story of a, of a kind of idea that had found its moments, that had found its time. I guess key to that success is people wanting to join the Freemasons. So apart from these high philosophical ideas that we discussed earlier, what were some of the key motivations for people joining the Freemasons? What did they get out of it? I mean, the answer to that might be different for different historical contexts and also across uh, geography as well. Yeah, different for different people. Um, But undoubtedly networking is part of the story. You would connect yourself to certain wig, big wigs, if you like. (laughs) Um, It's no coincidence that a number of um, uh, Huguenot exiles or from those Huguenot families were uh, important in early Freemasonry. These were, as it were, immigrants on the make uh, with a sort of marginal form of Protestantism who under the Whig settlement could make a play for patronage and so on and so forth. Um, the uh, it, Certainly in travel and networking, this gave you, became enormously important for uh, travelling across the globe. You found a ready-made home from home, familiar rituals, contacts, your reputation would be able to travel with you. And Freemasonry became, uh, developed a very close relationship to military life. There was a lot of boozing, a lot of backslapping, a lot of young men, you know, finding a place to learn from older men. And, you know, there is something very powerful about this formula of ritual, symbolism, moral messages as a, a, a shared male 
uh, form of growth, individual growth. Um, so it's not, it's by no means all cynical, you know, what's in it for me. Um, uh, it can be lots of things at the same time. Um, something I want to pick up on that you mentioned there was it's very much <clears throat> a, a male form of bonding. Do you think that Freemasonry has kind of na- helped to narrow the field of who has influence in societies, if it's been that important in shaping networks and things like that? It depends where. This is the, this is the uh, 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 qualification you have to have any time you have a discussion about Freemasonry, is that very soon after Freemasonry was created, it was presented with a huge problem of brand control. Yeah, people were inventing different forms of Freemasonry all over the place to suit their interests. It was founded originally on sort of enlightened principles of universal brotherhood and reason and um, religious, um, uh, a, a kind of ecumenical approach to religion and inclusiveness and so on, irrespective of race creed, colour, background, whatever. And that's one of the things I find attractive about the story is that these people who who were really trying to live out these ideals and the fact that you got Jewish Freemasons very early on in the story in the 18th century tells us an awful lot, you know, tells us that those ideals weren't just, they weren't just paying lip service to that. This is, you know, um, uh, one of the most... I think one of the reasons why their story is important. But to come back to your question, um, yeah, that universalism of Freemasons is paradoxical from the beginning. You know, it's universal values except for women in most cases. Or, you know, except if you can't afford the the entrance fee. Um, and it's a sort of clubby form of cosmopolitanism. The, the, the contradictions run through Freemasonry right from the beginning. And, and one, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is see those points where Freemasonry um, runs up against society and what happens to those universal values when it does and what happens to that model, that way of organising yourself that was so into a brotherhood with rituals and symbols and so on, that was so successful, yet it helps give rise to the Sicilian mafia, the Mormon church, the whole idea of, you know, the great seductive 19th and 20th century idea of revolution as a calling, as a cause, uh, as being a revolutionary, being dedicated, you know, part of a band of brothers dedicating their lives to a higher cause, a lot of that comes, that is forged in Masonic or quasi-Masonic political societies after the French Revolution. So that, um, the idea just becomes extraordinarily contagious and the... um, principles of Freemasonry, which I have a huge amount of sympathy with, why why I'm drawn to them, 
get twisted in all kinds of funny shapes in the process. Um, we've spoken throughout this conversation about the importance of influence and the Freemasons' influence quite vaguely, but I wonder if we could just nail that down a bit more. Yeah. What specific instances have you found of where that influence actually came into fruition? Let me give you two contrasting examples from the same period, just to give you an idea of how varied it can be. There was research done on German, I think it was Dresden in the early, very early 19th century, which showed that an awful lot of doctors and lawyers were Freemasons. And that Freemasonry in a way, worked in two senses, it seems, from that very micro study. On the one hand, yes, it was exclusive in that, you know, it was much harder to become a successful lawyer or a doctor if you were a Freemason. But on the other hand, it gave, if you were an outsider and you wanted to get into the professions, Joining the Masons was a relatively small price to pay in order to get access to that network, which then had a role in um, monitoring and maintaining and policing people's reputations and made sure that they walked the walk as well as talking the talk, if you like. So in a sense, that can be seen as a positive uh, thing. Um, the other uh, example, for example, under under Napoleon, where Freemasonry had pre- been pretty much killed off by the French Revolution, Napoleon revived it and did it really as an instrument of his regime. You know, the Masonic temples became temples for the, the personality cult of Napoleon. Uh, tons of his generals were uh, um, were Freemasons. He, uh, the, his, the closest people in his regime after he took power were uh, installed at the head of grand lodges in the countries that were then incorporated into the uh, French uh, French Empire, and they used it also to control. Um, political culture and political networking in. So that's where, if you were an ambitious Italian or Neapolitan, let's say, where you would get to hobnob with the French people who'd come down to run the Kingdom of Naples under Murat or or whatever. So um, then it was an instrument of the regime. So, and then, of course, the worst example of the networking is P2. P2, the Italian Masonic Lodge, uh, which was mixed up in all kinds of corruption, uh, blackmail, information gathering, right-wing terrorism, laundering money for the mafia, you name it. Um, (laughs) But but that took, you know, that's how, you remember the story of Roberto Calvi, who was found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge uh, in London. He was a member of P2 and his story is closely linked to P2. So take your pick. It depends where you go and it depends what uses Freemasonry is put to. Still to come on the History Extra podcast, 
a man called Leo Taxil. He was a former Freemason who'd seen satanic goings on within Masonic lodges, that he'd been a party to the Masonic conspiracy. He'd even seen the devil manifest himself in, in Masonic lodges. There are a lot of instances in the book of of persecution of Freemasons from the Spanish Inquisition through to the 20th century and Franco, Hitler. Could you um, talk about some of those? Yes, we... Um, that's a really, really important thread of the book. Um, this misunderstanding about Freemasonry, this the fear that they inspired, particularly in the Catholic Church, who saw who couldn't see their rituals as anything other than heretical and their idea that there was there were the, the, the Freemasons code of religious tolerance as itself a form of heresy yeah so the Freemasons were already greatly worried conservative European thought in the 18th century then the French Revolution came along and um, a French priest in exile in London, living on the Edgware Road, called the Abbe Barwell, wrote an explanation of the uh, French Revolution that blamed it all on a conspiracy by the Freemasons. That really fired the starting gun on the conspiracy theory. The modern conspiracy theory starts there. And from that point on, it becomes a feature of almost all right-wing thinking. Subsequently, it would also enter other areas of the political sphere very quickly. Um, It's extraordinary to think that really the idea that the Freemasons had caused all the ills of the modern world was the official policy of the Catholic Church for most of the 19th century. But, you know, that that was their interpretation of history and that was what was spread across the world by uh, Catholic journals like Civiltà Cattolica, Catholic Civilization. Um, demonic conspiracy. At, and then towards the end of the century... The, the, the template of Masonic conspiracy, these lodges where something evil is going on, infiltrating power, and behind those lodges there are probably secret lodges, and behind those other lodges there's some weird magus who's controlling it all. There's some funny little homunculus pulling all the strings from, from somewhere or other. That became the template for a new form of anti-Semitism the idea of uh, an obscure financial elite controlling stuff, uh, that, that incarnation, conspiracy theory incarnation of anti-Semitism, is, is modelled on the Masonic conspiracy idea that existed earlier. And, and, and the two become, uh, start to merge Hitler, you get the idea of the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy, which Hitler uh, uh, talks about, uh, among many, many others in Mein Kampf. 
So when you get to the 20th century dictatorships, do you think that the fact that there's all this um, scope for conspiracy theories, the secrecy, the rituals, all that that we've spoken about, was really an excuse almost for persecuting um, an alternative form of power networking to say that um, dictators didn't have control over themselves? Or do you think they really invested in those ideas? It, 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 well, like all of these things, I mean, if you look at Hitler's um, anti-Masonry, he was prepared to kind of turn it on and off as as suited his political purposes. And his political purposes were fundamentally anti-Semitic, wanted to wage a race war. The Masons could wait if need be, but they made... They gave a kind of socialistic flavour to his ideas when he needed them to because it seemed like he was sticking it to the, the, the kind of bourgeois elite and their cabals. Um, so it varies from dictator to di- dictator. Franco, General Franco, whose persecution of the Freemasons very few people know about, was astonishingly weird and paranoid. There's an archive in Salamanca, um, which is was, if you like, the capital of his anti-Masonic uh, repressive drive. The documentary machine behind it, cataloguing all Freemasons, and this went on way beyond the end of the Second World War into the sixties and seventies. Um, it's thought, and, and of course, during the Civil War, his his people massacred Freemasons out of hand. Um, the, it's thought there were a, probably, I guess, were about a thousand Freemasons left in Spain by the time the Civil War ended. Many had gone into exile or been killed or whatever. Having there having been maybe five thousand before. His great archive in Salamanca, which I've been to and I've consulted, has 80,000 names in it. And those people are, you know, they were, um, there was a special tribunal set up to try them. The minimum sentence was 12 years and a day. Um, Just this whole repressive machine driven by a fantasy a fantasy of the endlessly resourceful, invisible Masonic conspiracy. Uh, One particularly strange incident um, that I wanted to ask you about was from the 1890s, the Taxel hoax. Yes. (laughs) It's such a a bizarre tale. I wonder if you could share that with us. Yes, it is quite extraordinary. The, The climate of that time was of culture war. I mean, we know all about culture wars today. This was a culture war between the Catholic Church and the forces of secularization. In a lot of Catholic countries, um, secularizers were trying to introduce things like civil marriage, divorce, uh, non-religious schooling for children, even cremation was highly controversial, yeah? Um, where the church was resisting. They, they, they saw this as the rise of Satan and of the Freemasons, of course, because they blamed the Freemasons as everything. And in this context, a man called Leo Taxil, who had been 
a fervently anti-Catholic polemicist, converted, converted to Catholicism and declared that he had been the former, a former, he was a former Freemason who'd seen satanic goings-on within Masonic lodges, that he'd been a party to the Masonic conspiracy. He'd even seen the devil manifest himself in, in Masonic lodges. So with publishing contracts with, Cap, uh, you know, and a, and a no-show job uh, provided by the Catholic Church, he went on to write reams and reams and reams of stuff over 12 years with this conspiracy becoming ever more far-fetched. Uh, it's, it's very strange how very often these Masonic conspiracies about the Freemasons end up having women as the chief conspirators <laughs> behind them all. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's extremely nuts. But these evil, uh, si- you know, cigarette-smoking lesbian women who, <laughs> who are the head of this conspiracy, um, uh, and it generated this huge, and he got massive support from the church hierarchy until the doubts began to grow and people were worried. And, um, <clears throat> and, and at that point, he called a press conference in Paris uh, saying that he was going to show the truth and the final evidence that was going to prove his case. And at that point, he declared it was all a hoax and that he'd been stringing people along for 12 years. Um, bizarre. And then, and then the waves closed over this moment and everybody preferred to forgot, forget about it because he, he, everybody seemed embarrassed uh, by it. I guess what is remarkable about that is that he was given so much airtime and people were prepared to listen and, and invest in, in that story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of a couple of concluding questions. Over the centuries... Do you think that Freemasonry has adapted well to changing times? Yes, Um, in that its most successful era was really the early and middle of the 20th century. Um, In I think the peak was in 1959. In the United States, it had over 4 million members. 4 million, you know, if you were white American middle class, you were a Freemason. Either that or a member of one of the many other brotherhoods that the Masons generated, because one of the key things about this story is people keep pinching that Masonic idea and founding similar sorts of brotherhoods. Um, And, you know, the early 20th century with the global wars a lot of men turned to Freemasonry to find that fellowship and that sense of meaning and, and uh, uh, comradeship that they'd found in war, but also a way of coming to terms, I think, with big spiritual questions like death and the meaning of life. A lot of Freemasonry's rituals are about death. They are now a greying organisation, they have, in, in a lot of countries, that's not true everywhere at all, but let's say in Britain and the UK and the US, they're, they're strongest territories. Um, they are a greying organisation. They do have, um, you know, they're, they're thinking about that hard and what they're going to do and so on and so forth. 
I hope my book will um, uh, give them cause for reflection. I hope there'll be a discussion with Freemasons about it because I say a lot of positive things about Freemasonry as well as negative things. Um, and because they, you know, we at a time of atomization and so on, there's a lot to be said for uh, that kind of uh, experience based on uh, principles of tolerance and so on and so forth, if they can be lived out properly and they do huge amounts for charity and so on and so forth. Um, but you, they're not going to die out anytime soon, but you do wonder, uh, you know, their success was built, you can't help thinking, on the exclusion of women from the public sphere. You know, the, the picture of the classic Freemason in 1950s America was the guy, you know, drives off to the office, leaves, leaves his wife and kids behind to kind of use her new floor polishing machine or something. Uh, and he comes back later, has a couple of cocktails and a bit of dinner and then heads out to the lodge. Uh, that's, you just can't live like that anymore. Um, so, you know, that is presenting them with big problems. It's one of the reasons why, for example, French Freemasons recently admitted women, the, the Grand Orient of France, and there's an interesting story behind that, um, in that the first woman, the woman who broke the mould as a um, trans woman. Um, but, you know, that is a, that, that's a step, that clearly needs to be taken seriously if they, you know, give full and equal uh, participation to women. Um, so yes and no. An aspect of the book I found really interesting was just how um, Freemasonry played out in imperial contexts. And you you briefly mentioned um, attitudes to race, but I wonder if you could just go into a bit more detail on that. Yeah. There's no question Freemasonry has a code of um, uh, tolerance that potentially makes it open to all races and uh, creeds and, and so on. Um, that said, in many, many contexts, it has had a lot of problems dealing with race as we all have. The United States is the most startling case of a brotherhood founded on those same universal ideals of freedom and, you know, uh, freedom of thought and interaction and association and tolerance and so on and so forth. That has been racially divided since 1775. There are two Freemasonries in America, a black one and a white one. And there still are to this day, since 1775. It's astonishing and embarrassing for American Freemasonry. Uh, and that split runs through the American chapters of the book, uh, dealing with the Civil War and, and, um, and civil rights and so on. In the British Empire, you get something of the, the same problem. Down on the ground, these 
Brits who were using the lodges for their social lives and their networking in the you know in an imperial context, as I already mentioned. You know, you could you could be a, a bureaucrat who moved from uh, the Cape to Calcutta and walk into a lodge and be welcomed among your brethren and have a tap into a social life and, and support network straight away and a sort of welfare state of a kind. What do you do when the natives want to join? In some cases, the natives were welcomed very early on because they wanted to co-opt local rulers. But what happens towards the end of the 19th century when Indians start to become more educated, more part of the infrastructure... And there's a lot of conflict about this. And I, I look at the case of Kipling to see how a man who was believed profoundly in Freemasonry but was also profoundly racist negotiated this strange contradiction and wrote the most famous Masonic poem of them all uh, in the process. So the same, one hand, it oiled the wheels of empire, Freemasonry, provided a kind of cover story for empire as well, because they were doing it in the ideals of brotherhood and, and so on and so forth. At the same time, it's not a coincidence that about half of the early leaders of the Indian National Congress were Freemasons that Freemasonry offered a kind of gym where people could learn the skills of politics. It offered a way to, an, an ideology that could transcend the differences in India between Muslims and Hindus. So you get a figure like Motilal Nehru, whose son would go on to be the first prime minister of an independent India and whose, you know, granddaughter was, you know, the Nehru dynasty, the big Congress party uh, dynasty. Motilal Nehru was a member of the same lodge as Rudyard Kipling in Allahabad at the same time. They were brothers in that way, politically a million miles apart. I mean, you, you don't have to search far in um, in Kipling's writing to find out what he thought. I think that's something that Freemasons really, really need to come to terms with. They can't keep recounting the story of their role in empire, which Queen Victoria trumpeted and, you know, uh, the future King Edward, her son, was... Um, <clears throat> The, the, the Grand Master of Freemasonry and considered it part of his sort of imperial job, they can't keep recounting that story in the same tone of pride as if they didn't, you know, that, that Masonic ideology at a time when Freemasonry was hugely important to public life in Britain when the, the minutes of lodges would be printed in local newspapers and, and the Masons would parade up and down streets with pride and, and so on. And so on. You, you, you can't separate that out from imperial history. It, it, it's a huge blind spot in, uh, from the dark side of imperial history. I mean, it's a huge blind spot in the way the Masons talk about themselves and their own past.
So my final question, mm. it's very broad and might seem incredibly obvious to you. Why do you think it's important to study and understand the history of the Freemasons? I think anybody who believes in ideals like um, tolerance, reason, those great enlightenment ideals, uh, at least a sort of formal equality of rights and so on between peoples, who is a cosmopolitan, who doesn't believe in narrow nationalism. Freemasonry is a very cosmopolitan organisation, a very international organisation, needs to understand the history of those ideas, how they've been put into practice. And I think the history of Freemasonry, better of the Masonic idea, and the different manifestations it's had all over the place, really brings, I call it a kind of tragicomedy of those Enlightenment ideals, into very sharp focus and makes us think harder about how hard it is to live those ideals out and what it takes um, to do that. That was John Dickey. His book, The Craft, How Freemasons Made the Modern World, is out now, published by Hodder. I spoke to John for the September issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on Edward the Confessor, the end of the Second World War, medieval manuscripts and more. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another lecture from our History Weekend events on Britain in the 1980s. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.